Please listen carefully. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, everyone. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a wonderful start to 2022. We've got a great show for you today to kick off the year, but first, a few podcast news and notes. So the first bit of news is about my co-host since our very first episode, Allie Dagnus. Allie has decided to step away from the pod to focus on other projects, which I hear includes an exciting new book, so keep an eye out for that. I am very, very grateful to have been able to do a full year's worth of episodes with Allie, and I wish her all the best. In other news, not only do we continue our relationship with Lee Enterprises, who feature our podcast on their 77 news websites around the United States, but the Utterly Moderate Network is now the official podcast network of the Connors Forum for a Healthy Democracy. And you can check out all that the Connors Forum does at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M dot org. And that's where our podcast will be housed from now on. All right. Well, we got three great segments for you today. First up, we have political scientist Jim White from Concord University in West Virginia to talk about Joe Manchin and West Virginia politics, uh, Jim's research into American voting behaviors and much more. In segment two, we have a great panel of political scientists here to discuss the future of America's political parties. And then we'll wrap up the show in segment three with a few stories from around the news. So first up, we've got political scientist Jim White from Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. Jim, welcome to the show, my friend. It's good to be with you, Lawrence. It's been uh, too long since we've been together. I know. Thanks for joining me. And how was your uh, how has your holiday break been so far? Well, we had a really nice holiday break. You know, the the the, uh, the bar is lower in 2021, um, <laughs> but uh, everybody. Uh, well, I was going to say everybody avoided COVID, but that's not true. One of our friends that we vacationed with had to go back because uh, their son had COVID, and then the mom uh. got COVID when she went back to be with them, but. Uh, we had a wonderful time together with our sons, our adult sons, and uh, some college friends, and uh, just were felt really lucky. Got to see my father and some relatives. A very nice time. Nice, yeah. I, I want to apologize for my voice. Uh, my son, our whole family is vaccinated, and uh, my wife and I have, have been boosted. We wear masks everywhere, but our toddler can't get the vaccine. So he brought COVID home from daycare and he gave it to me. So I am now battling COVID as I talk to you right now. <laughs> That's news to me. You feeling okay? Uh, not great, but not not on my deathbed. So. The, um, my, uh, my, our younger son brought his uh, girlfriend to the beach and uh, she got the uh, Omicron variant in New York, uh, but it got it early enough that she was over with us. So, but she was still uh, suffering from it. I was having a hard time breathing, having a hard time walking um so uh it's uh even this variant when it's milder is hard on people so i'm sorry that uh that you have it and i'm and your son doing okay yeah yeah he's just you know kind of you know how toddlers are he was miserable but he couldn't tell you yeah so it's just it's know. been a long time since i know how toddlers are it's good <laughs> <laughs> well you work in academia so you know uh, something yeah, about well, it. <laughs> colleague, colleagues right and me well, i'm sure my colleagues are would say we used to share a wall you know 
I know, I know. All right, well, uh, Jim, we're going to start off with, uh, we're going to start off dark. You ready to start off dark? Uh, yes, sir. Actually, I know Jim pretty well. Like like he said, I used to share a wall with him at Concord University. And so, I know I know you're, you're ready for the darkness. So, let's start with some <laughs> darkness. Um, let's talk about American democracy, my friend. Yeah, yeah. It's been, so, it's, uh, been, it's been a hard year. <clears throat> it has. Um, give you a few quotes here and then I'll ask you for your feedback. Uh, in the words of Yasha Monk, the warning signs are flashing red for democracy. Uh, Evan Osnos from The New Yorker describes it as a five-alarm fire. Robert Kagan in The Washington Post says we're on the verge of the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War. Quite possibly the suspension of American democracy as we've known it. A number of organizations, including the econo- the Economist's Intelligence Unit, have the U.S. as a flawed democracy. So, but I'm a sociologist, Jim. You're a political scientist. How worried are you about the current and future state of American democracy? Yeah. So, um, uh, Lawrence, uh, I'm I'm entering. Well, I'm, I've, I've already started my seventh decade on this planet, and uh, um, I guess when I was a you know, your kid's age. Um, uh, those were some tough times for America in the 1960s. Uh, a lot of civil unrest. And um, so I, I came of age at the end of the civil rights um, movement, even though I'm, you know, I'm not a young man myself. So this is uh, the most troublesome time I've lived through uh, by far. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried um, because you know, we're just a year in, just a year past the January 6th uh, insurrection. And um, uh, what I expected to happen in the wake of that was that uh, uh, people would uh, come to their senses and we'd meet in the middle and uh, uh, we'd do what uh, America has generally done during my lifetime, at least, which is um, uh, uh, seek uh um, well, you, the title of your show is utterly moderate, right? To, to seek a, a middle ground, a way forward, a way to uh, compromise together. And, and that's not what's happened. What's happened is uh, uh, um, I, I think Mann and uh, Ornstein uh, describe it as asymmetric uh, polarization that uh, the people who um, uh, are, are off to one side just re- refuse to to budge and they're, they're not getting any help in moving back to where they should, whether it's um, about the election being stolen or about behaving reasonably in response to this pandemic. And so, yeah, I, th- I think these are troubled times and I, I'm very worried. Yeah. We're going to get to the asymmetry in a moment. And I actually want to talk about um, Joe Manchin for a minute, but before we get there, um, you have an interesting history. You're not just an academic. I mean, you have a history in politics. Tell us briefly about your own history. Uh, I believe you, I believe you're in Moynihan's office. Is that right? Yeah, I think a lot of colleagues would tell you I'm not even an academic now. Um, the uh, I, I started out um, uh, uh, a long time ago. But academia is my second career. Right, I'm I'm starting my. Uh, my 25th year teaching uh, college students, which is great. I mean, it's the best job ever. You know, it's the best job ever. Absolutely. Uh, teaching at a regional uh, um, uh, public institution uh, as a generalist where I get to talk uh, about lots of things that interest me to uh, students who want to do well. But but before that, I was a uh, 
you know, I was just a run of the mill bureaucrat at the uh, uh, state and the local and federal level. Um, worked for a, uh, a guy by the name of Tom Kane, who was the governor of New Jersey and the one of the co-chairs of the nine uh, of the um, of the nine eleven commission. Uh, I, that was my first uh, job um, in politics or in government, if you will. That was. A long time ago, I was a uh, registered Democrat at the time, and I worked for the Republican governor of New Jersey and um, really thrived there. It, uh, the, the fact I was a Democrat didn't bother anybody, and uh, uh, the fact that Tom Kane was a Republican didn't bother me. He was a great man and believed in governing the state of New Jersey well. Um, I went from there to work for some anti-poverty programs in Durham, North Carolina, working for a program that was... Um, uh, a federally funded program that was created by, uh, by uh, the partnership of uh, Ted Kennedy and Dan Quayle, a program called the Job Training Partnership Act that looked at making in investments in workers and making sure that uh, there was on-the-job training. So I did that in Durham, North Carolina for a few years and got my master's degree in public administration at North Carolina State University, you know, taking classes at night and then got... Uh, uh, hired as something called a presidential management intern. It's now called the uh, presidential management fellowship and uh, got to work in Washington, D.C. for five years, including being detailed, as as you uh, remarked upon, being detailed to uh, Senator Moynihan's office to work on uh, to work on welfare reform there. So, you know, I've had uh, and, and that was all great. And then uh, uh, my brother-in-law married a uh, economist, a college professor, and uh, uh, her job uh, uh, teaching 30 weeks a year with a walk-to-school commute looked better than my job of <laughs> working 14 hours a day with an hour and a half commute on each end, uh, given that my wife and I wanted to start a family. So uh, uh, so I spent the last 25 years uh, talking about government uh uh, living in Appalachia and, and loving every second of it. Very, very, very fortunate. So that was probably longer than you needed, but uh, uh, that that's my uh, uh, that's my last uh, oh, thirty years, man. You can tell me it. <laughs> I've been at it a long time. Okay, so uh, before we get to a whole host of topics, I want to get to asymmetric polarization and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, as somebody who's in West Virginia and as a Democrat yourself, I got to ask you a question about Joe Manchin. I'm a little bit perplexed by Democrats' response to Manchin. I feel like if Joe Manchin was the kind of guy who supported Build Back Better, he wouldn't be the kind of guy that got elected in West Virginia yeah. <laughs> in a state that Trump won by 40 points. So why are Democrats so shocked by his, by his behavior? I mean, this, this only benefits him, right? Your, your, your question about Manchin um, is why people are... Um, uh, are surprised by him. It, it is an interesting one. You know, West Virginia, there was an interesting article, uh, interesting editorial in the, um, uh, in the state newspaper by, uh, uh, uh David Fryson, uh, just a couple Sundays ago. Maybe it was just this past Sunday, uh, talking about, um, uh, Senator Manchin's history in the Democratic Party in West Virginia and how it's different than other, uh, uh, Democrats in West Virginia. Uh, like Senator Byrd and Senator Rockefeller. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, there were other uh, people, even since I've been there, um, uh, Bob Wise, um, 
uh, people who were uh, more liberal than Manchin. But but you're exactly right. I mean, uh, uh, Senator Manchin's views on this are they're not new to him. Uh, Senator Manchin, you, the the title of your show is utterly moderate, and um, uh, Senator Manchin um, likes the likes to be in the middle, right? Likes to negotiate. Uh, deals between uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans. I mentioned I've only voted for a handful of Republicans. One of the ones I voted for was a guy by the name of Don Carruth, who was, uh, I think, the Senate minority leader when uh, uh, Senator Manchin was governor of West Virginia. And uh, uh, Senator State, State Senator Carruth got along great uh, with Governor Manchin, right? They both West Virginia guys, West Virginia, West Virginia University guys, and they like to get together and cut deals uh, with each other. So, and I think that's what Senator Manchin sees him sees as his main skill, uh, bringing people together. Um, and and uh, you can see on the Democratic Party, he's, he's brought the Democratic Party together in uh, uh, getting a, a lot of Democrats mad at him together. So that's uh, and so and Republicans too, a lot of Republicans happy with him. So uh, to that extent, he might have succeeded. So I want to talk a bit about, uh, I, I was going to wait to get to this till a little bit later, but since you brought up asymmetric polarization, um, a, a couple recent polls that stuck out to me that I think kind of demonstrate this, but you're a political scientist, so you can expand upon this, but <clears throat> two kind of extreme, in my view, extreme positions, defund the police and the election, the election was stolen, right? So, right. uh, there was a, let's see, um, NPR Ipsos poll from uh, December, which found that two thirds of GOP respondents agreed that voter fraud helped Joe Biden win the 2020 election. So strong majority of Republican voters. And then an October poll from the Pew Research Center found that while about a quarter of Democrats supported decreasing police spending, 34% 34% wanted to increase it and 40% wanted to keep it the same. So 74% either wanted to keep it the same or increase it. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, a, a case to be made objectively that those are two extreme positions, but one party is totally beholden to it and the other has its segment, right? That's beholden to it, but most of the party doesn't believe that. So it's, it's not symmetric, right? Right. That, that, that's, uh, I think that's a good example of asymmetric polarization. You know, I, I think it, it, it's hard uh, to be alive for the last um, uh, few years when everybody's walking around with one of these in their pockets and you can actually see uh, what happened in uh, encounters with the police and, um, and, and, and not think, well, we, we've got a, We've got a problem in the United States. We've got a problem with uh, training and attitudes and a whole variety of things that that need uh, to be redressed. Um, but the idea that we uh, that we don't need police is, you know, I, I, it, it, it's hard to agree with that. So defund the police is uh, is obviously a problematic slogan and um, um, and one that uh, even most uh, Democrats and d- definitely most people don't agree with. The election was stolen ha- has a long history. Um, there's been uh, uh, there's been a quarter century of somebody who studies voting behavior to the extent I have a specialty. Uh, but so I study voting behavior and the idea that there's a lot of voter fraud uh, has been pushed um, uh, by partisans for a quarter century who wanted to make it harder uh, for people 
who don't vote for that party to vote. Um, you know, when, when I explain it to classes, I explain the difference between, you know, type one and type two error, right? Uh, type one error is a, uh, is a false positive. That's letting somebody who's not allowed to vote, uh, to vote. And, um, Type two error is keeping somebody who should be allowed to vote from voting. Well, what we've done is uh, uh, based upon a lot of rhetoric that's um, not based on fact for the last 25 years is we've tried to make it harder for people to vote Um, uh, because the party that's been trying to make it harder for young people to vote and uh, low income people to vote doesn't generally get the votes of young people and low income people. So, you know, it makes perfect um, uh, sense, uh, theoretically, um, why uh, uh, that party wouldn't want folks to vote. I mean, they're trying to they're trying to win elections. Right. I mean, what, what I compare what I do with students is I say, well, which party gerrymanders, the Democrats or the Republicans? And, you know, students readily recognize it. But of course, both the Democrats and Republicans gerrymander. They both want to win seats. Um that that's what political parties do. They they try to win. They try to win elections. Well, one party has been trying to make it harder to vote because the people that they can make it harder for whom they can make it harder to vote are less likely to vote for them. That's that's perfectly rational. Whether they should be doing it or not is a whole other question. Um, but it's perfectly rational, uh, and we should understand the rationality of it. And then we as citizens we can vote based upon whether we think that's the right thing to do. Now, what happens is um, most Americans are uh, are underinformed, and uh, uh, when they have people that they like, uh, th- they assume that they're telling them the truth, right? And so you assume that your political party is telling you the truth, the other political party is lying to you, and if your political party says there's a lot of in-person voter fraud and the way we can uh, stop people from stealing an election is to make it harder to vote, uh the partisans, the people who identify with that party are likely to believe it. And we've had 25 years of rhetoric telling people that there's immense amount of voter fraud out in the uh, out in the world. And it's it's not true. But um, uh, you say things often enough, people will believe it. It shows the power of disinformation, which um, uh, which, you know, those of us in academia, we we should know better. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still surprised by it every day. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that that, that common sense doesn't win out the day, but, um, you know, the, the big lie supports remain high for that. Yeah. So are we going to come out of this time where we have separate realities or are we stuck here? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I um, I, <laughs> I, I think we may be stuck here for as long as it is profitable uh, for people to continue pushing the big lie, right? I mean, there are, uh, and again, I, I, I like to bring it back to the uh, to the vaccine uh, because I think that's a a starker way to understand it. There have been lots of people who have been reticent uh, to tell people to do what's in their best interest, the best interest of them as individuals, and their best interest as a community. Go get vaccinated, wear a mask, listen to the healthcare professionals, be, be reasonable um, and, and, and understand that uh, everybody's doing their best and, and things will change. Um, uh, 
but there are people who, uh, you know, I've got, uh, occasionally I have to explain this to international students. So what, what's wrong with you Americans? You know, I'm from a country where we can't get a vaccine. We would all want to take it. And you guys are turning it down. What is wrong with you people? And I say, well, you know, but the people who are turning it down, they're turning it down because they're being lied to and manipulated by people who themselves are getting vaccinated and they're making sure that their friends and relatives and their kids are vaccinated, but they're pretending to not think it works. Um, and the reason that they're pretending not think it works is because there's a market share in them that they can make more money off of it and, and get more resources. You know, I, 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 I teach what's called the public choice model, right? You want to understand people's behavior uh, look where the benefits uh, lie, right? People will do things to benefit themselves, um, uh, even if it seems like not necessarily a nice thing to do, right? Yeah, and, and we all realize that. When we go to buy a car from somebody, we realize that, well, that person's got their own interests, and their interests are different than mine. Well, it's the same with information, and it's the same about the big lie. If you can get people to watch your show by promoting the big lie, uh, there are some people who will promote it, even though they know it's not true. And I mean, that's what the January 6th commission is collecting information, right? There's a whole bunch of journalists who on January 6th, I mean, they're patriotic Americans. They don't want to see a mob storming uh, Capitol Hill. They don't want to see a riot. I mean, it, it's embarrassing and it's wrong. Um, and so they're sending text messages. Hey, you got to stop this. This is bad. Um, but, you know, they did that one day and the rest of the day they're they're pretending that uh that's not what they think and um uh their wallets are fatter because they pretend that's not what they think uh we recently had kimberly whaley who's a law professor at the university of baltimore on the show and she argues for two reforms in particular she wants an affirmative right to vote and changes to the electoral count act she says of the electoral count act she said there are massive holes in the Electoral Count Act. It is stunning that there's nothing requiring states to count the popular vote. Arizona's proposing legislation to ignore the popular vote and allow the state legislature to pick the electors. That's not democracy. If this is not addressed, state legislators and or Congress can steal the next election. The future of our republic is at stake. So I'll ask you as a political scientist, when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to the Electoral Count Act, when it comes to anything else uh, in our democracy, what would you like to see done? I, I, I think there's one big idea. The, uh, the, the head of the American Political Science Association about, uh, uh, about 30 years ago, Governor Aaron Liphart, uh, said that the magic bullet um, uh, for voting in the United States is uh, compulsory voting. And they've got compulsory voting in lots of democracies. And so I think uh, compulsory voting would be the one magic bullet that would take us away from um, you know, all of the games that go on that, that, that try to keep people from voting. And, and it's not just, you know, things like voter ID law and these nuisance laws. It's not having enough voting machines so that people have to wait in line five hours, right? If, if we all knew that, uh, well, everybody's got to vote, uh, this day, well, let's implement all the reforms that will allow us to get through the day in a reasonable amount of time and make sure that it's, there's equal numbers of machines all over the city. So, I think to the extent that there's one magic bullet, it would be um, uh, compulsory voting. But there are steps in between uh, uh, compulsory voting. One would be automatic voter registration. West Virginia is one of 
22 states that has it. It was passed by the Republican legislature um, because we're in a state that if you add a new voter, they're almost certainly going to be a Republican. So I think that's the best framework to understand this stuff. You know, I did my dissertation on the National Voter Registration Act of 1994, and uh, that's commonly called motor voter. Well, back in the 80s and 90s, Newt Gingrich and George Will were in favor of motor voter. They thought it was a great reform. And the reason they thought it was a great reform is back in the, the, the people that helps most is young people, right? Who's, who's less likely to vote? Well, young people, and they're less likely to vote because they don't know where to get registered and they haven't gone through the process. In the 80s and 90s, young people were more likely to be Republican than Democrat. So uh, loyal Republicans liked um uh, the motor voter uh, bill. So if we all agree, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, well, yeah, of course, everybody should vote. We, we should make voting, you know, a right. Um, and we we all agree that voter fraud is bad. Let's uh, let's try to eliminate voter fraud. And then, you know, th- th- that's a starting place. But um, it, it's harder to get there when uh, um, um, uh, people presume that the other side has has bad motives. And so one of the things I try to tell my students, everybody has the same motive. Everybody wants to win. Um, and so because they want to win because they think their ideas are better. And so uh, if, we, if, we, if we start from that, it's, it's easier to understand other people's motivations. How about, so the vote casting side of it, you're clearly in favor of shoring up. How about the vote counting side of it? Like as Kimberly Whaley mentions, fixing the Electoral Count Act. No, no, I, 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 I agree with the constitutional scholars that say that 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 needs to be uh, correct. But but there's probably, you know, we, we should probably review the whole electoral college uh, uh, thing. But the, the, but uh, the Electoral Count Act is a is a way station in between uh, here and there. Right. So presuming presuming the Electoral College stays in place. Uh, which, yeah. And there's know. no reason not to think that it will. Right. Yeah. All right, Jim, let's talk a little bit about the normalization of political violence. So you have a long history in politics. You came up in the 1960s. People were being assassinated pretty regularly in the 1960s. It was a scary time. So I'm not suggesting that this is new or hasn't happened before, but it it does seem as if we're taking a, a, um, a, a negative turn in this regard. So there was a Reuters piece, um, at the end of December and they were cataloging, cataloging hundreds of menacing messages and threats that have been sent to election workers across 16 states in what Reuters describes as a campaign of intimidation against the state and local officials who administer U.S. elections. And of course, these uh, threats were based upon the idea that these workers themselves had, had stolen the election. They threatened death, bodily harm to workers and their families. Some of the messages were sexualized. Some of them were racist. And for the listeners, I just want to warn you, I'm going to read you a few of these. You can go see the Reuters piece yourself if you'd like. There's hundreds of these messages. They're disturbing, but I think you need to hear how disturbing they were um, to understand what's the kind of pressure that's being put on election workers. So let me just read a few of them. They're disturbing, and I apologize for their content, but here's a few. Uh, you and your family will be killed very slowly. Watch your back. I know where you sleep. I see you sleeping. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Let's burn her house down and kill her family. Here's a particularly troubling one. I hope your children get molested. We are now watching your children and your loved ones. Your daughter is beautiful. It'd be a shame if something happened to her. 
in addition to that Reuters piece, Jim, there was a, a, a poll last month from the Washington Post and the University of Maryland. And they found that a third of Americans say violence against government can sometimes be justified. So I want to ask you, again, you've, you've given us your history in politics and, and, and you're coming up in the 1970s or 1960s, sorry. Um, this seems new, at least for the modern period. And, and this seems like a troubling turn. Are we seeing a normalization of something? Um, uh, you're worried about it and I, I join you in being worried about it. You know, the, uh, uh, the coarseness of our culture, the coarseness of our rhetoric, the, uh, normalization of violence. I think those are all, um, all troubling things. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, um, pro- probably, uh, the best, uh, the best thing we could do is to encourage people um, uh, to speak out against it, to, to encourage everybody uh, to speak out against it. You know, as this uh, uh, new year dawns, um, um, there's been lots of um, uh, troubling rhetoric um, a- aimed at um, all sorts of people. Um, you know, doctors trying to help us get through the pandemic, um, you know, people who we disagree with and, um, you know, that would be a good, um, uh, a good resolution for all of our lives. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize, you know, but when, when people are allowed to, um, uh, communicate anonymously, um, um, they, they can, uh, uh, be more likely to, uh, to be more extreme, you know, the, listening to the people who, um, who've gone to trial for uh, going to the insurrection. The, the one guy I saw last week, uh, you know, just said he was, he was so ashamed. He can't, he can't believe that he behaved that way. Um, you know, and, and I think we should take people, you know, at their word um, that, that, that they know the right way to behave and that they, um, and that they shouldn't make these threats. And, you know, people get caught up in the rhetoric of, uh, of the side that they're on. And, um, uh, coming to believe that uh, the people who disagree with them uh, are not just um, people, fellow citizens who disagree with them, but they're the enemy. They're trying to uh, kill our country. Um, and, and that's a really troublesome thing, right? Our, our, you know, we live in a country with Democrats and Republicans. It would, our country would be better off if, uh, if we all agreed that, uh, um, you know, the, the other side has um, has policies that we disagree with, but they're not the enemy. Their their kids go to school with our kids. We go to the uh, we go to the same churches. We go to the same stores. We have the same uh, festivals. We uh, we live under the same constitution. Right. We uh, we um, uh, we agree with our ideas rather than the other ideas. But the, the, the our opponents are and our enemies. You know, you and you and I are educators, and I hope that we relay that in our class. That um, uh, that 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 to the extent that uh, uh, that we disagree with others, we should try to understand their point of view, try to empathize, and and try to know that we uh, we disagree with the idea, but the the person the person is not the idea, right? To limit the ad hominem attacks. All right, Jim, I want to read you an excerpt from an article that uh, actually came to my attention from Jonathan Last at The Bulwark recently. It's actually from September 2020. 
I think it's interesting. I'm going to read you a long excerpt. I apologize. Yeah. And I, I just want you to hear it and I want you to respond to it. Tell me if, uh, pull me back from the ledge. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he says, um, this is from uh, a writer named Indy Samara Jiva. And I'm sure that I mispronounced that. But it was an article in Medium in September 2020. And he says this, he says, I lived through the end of a civil war. I moved back to Sri Lanka in my 20s, just as the ceasefire fell apart. Do you know what it was like for me? Quite normal. I went to work. I went out. I dated. This is what Americans don't understand. They're waiting to get personally punched in the face while the ashes fall from the sky. That's not how it's going to happen. As someone who's already experienced societal breakdown, here's the truth. America's already collapsed. What you're feeling is exactly how it feels. It's Saturday and you're thinking about food while the world's on fire. This is normal. This is life during collapse. It honestly becomes mundane for the privileged. We used to go out, worry about money, fall in love. Life went on. We pop the trunk for a bomb check. Turn off our lights for the air raids. I'm not saying we were untouched. My friend's dad was killed suddenly by a landmine. I know people who were beaten, arrested, went into exile. But that's not what my photo stream looks like. It was mostly food and parties and normal stuff for a dumb 20-something. If you're waiting for a moment where you're like, this is it, I'm telling you, it never comes. Nobody comes on TV and says things are officially bad. There's no launch party for decay. It's just a pileup of outrages and atrocities in between friendships and weddings. Collapse is just a series of ordinary days in between extraordinary BS, most of it happening to someone else. America has fallen. You need to look up at the people you're used to looking down on. We're trying to tell you something. I've lived through collapse and you're already there. Until you understand this, you only have further to fall. So my friend, <laughs> pretty dark, but I have kind of found myself like seeing things spiraling out of control for the last decade, looking around like, where is this all leading? And, and reading this piece, I, I kind of started saying to myself, maybe we have collapsed. Yeah. Maybe we're already in it. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I could use a hug. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, well, I mean, you know, Lawrence, I'm, I'm a first generation uh, uh, college grad. Uh, you know, my my parents knew hard times growing up, and what, what I tell people, you know, I've got a 98 year old father that I was lucky enough to see over the the holidays, and he's still, you know, living in this house. Um, uh, and and doing well, and I, I I tell people that my next hard day will be my first, um, you know. And so th those of us who were uh, lucky to grow up in uh, suburban areas of the United States, you know, I've been uh, reading, uh, you know, Raj Chetty on the American Dream and, uh, and great work, great and, work, and yeah. opportunity uh, society, and there's there's lots of us who've. Uh, who've only lived during, uh, uh, you know, predominantly prosperous times. Um, and, and, and I know there's lots of people, uh, lots of fellow countrymen and certainly people in other countries, uh, uh, other countries uh, who have it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think that concern is on the mark, right? I mean, it's, we're, we're on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection where, where people tried to overturn the results of a free and fair election. A very free and very fair election, uh, and we're willing to do it with violence and uh, and think more violence is justified. And so uh, that is uh, extremely concerning. 
Um, and so, yes, I mean, for, for those of us who are worried, um, you know, I, I think people are, are very right to be worried and um, um, that to the extent we can turn this around, we, we need to uh, turn it around quickly. So I, I don't know if that makes you, you feel better. I know, I, I know the question made me feel worse and thinking about it makes me feel worse. <laughs> you know, what, 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 I, what I see is my responsibility is to, um, is to tell my friends and relatives um, uh, um, that, uh, um, that we all need to be on guard. Um, that we all need to, uh, remember, um, uh, that, um, uh, that we're not guaranteed the right to, to live in a democracy. Um, that democracy is very fragile, uh, that it falls, that it's fallen elsewhere and that it, it can definitely fall here. Uh, my, my hope is that, uh, is that, that people can get turned around. They, they, they can remember, uh, what they say they uh, believe and uh, what they say they believe in. So um, uh, I'm getting misty as I start to talk about it, right? I mean, uh, um, uh, back when I was a federal bureaucrat, uh, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Um, uh, we, we live in a great country. Uh, it's a very imperfect com- com- country. It's a country that... Uh, had lots of problems and whose leaders have done a lot of, uh, of, of terrible things. Uh, that said, um, uh, I'm very happy and very proud, uh, to be an American. And, uh, uh, I, I think the Republic, um, will endure and that, uh, it will endure because, um, uh, we're very lucky, uh, uh, to have the constitution that we have, um, and a, a set of values um, uh, that believes in the dignity of uh, individual human beings. And uh, if we find our way back to that, uh, that North Star, um, I, I think we'll be all right. And um, um, uh, America often finds its way back to that North Star. Uh, in the words of the, you know, the preamble, of our constitution is a, is a glorious thing. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think we'll get back there. I'm more worried. Uh, I'm worried about how far we got away, but I think we will get back there. Well said, Jim, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this segment. So, uh, James White, political scientist from Concord university. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights on American politics. Lawrence has been my pleasure and I hope uh, we can have another conversation soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Stick around. We've got a panel of political scientists to talk about the future of American political parties up next. Well, up next, political scientists Lance Bailey, Larry Becker, Allison Dagnus, and Gerald Duquette went to UMass Amherst together for grad school and met political scientist Doug Harris along the way. They all studied under and became incredibly close to Jerry Malore, a UMass political science professor who studied American politics in general and political parties in particular. Every year, UMass friends would meet at the Northeast Political Science Association's 
annual conference and hold a roundtable discussion on the future of the parties. After Jerry Malore's death in 2017, the panel was officially named in his honor, and this caught the attention of the editors at the Amherst College Press, who asked Lance Bailey to edit a book that is both a collection and an extension of this decades-long conversation. Modern American Politics and the State of the Parties brings together accomplished scholars in the field of American politics to offer essays on the current state of political parties and their relations to electoral politics and politics in general. Covering a wide range of topics, the book offers insights and research into focused topics associated with political parties, such as campaigns, electoral analysis, campaign communications, media, party ideology, religion, campaign finance, institutional development, party strategy, state party politics, and American political thought. The book also brings to light debates within political science about elections, parties, and campaign strategy, and how political scientists and observers think about parties and politics in the U.S. And we have four of the contributing authors here to talk about this today. Larry Becker, Allison Dagnus, Gerald Duquette, and Doug Harris. And our friend Allison Dagnus will lead the panel. Okay, I have a... I have a uh, rather suggestive opening question. And Gerald, I want you to take a stab at it first. Gerald Duquette. Do we still have two political parties? Well, that's a good question. Uh, my, uh, in my head, I was thinking my opening would be that uh, we first have to ask that kind of a question. But, the, but, but moreover, we have two things that are called the Democratic and Republican Party, but they're so different that I don't think we can call them the same thing, right? So before we can even ask if we have parties, the things that we used to call parties, one of them is something and the other is something else. Now the question is, which one is closer to what we think of as a party? Right. And in my view, we could still talk about the Democrats in, in large measure as a party because they've always been screwed up. The Republican Party, on the other hand, has has in fact gone you know crazy. So, you know, when we think about what's really the most debated thing in parties today, it's pretty much all about uh you know, what's going on inside the Democratic Party, the whole, you know, it's as if there's only one party and it's the Democrats and it's their job to cure all of the things that are breaking with democracy because those are all being done by the Republicans, which leaves us with a debate, which is very old in the Democratic Party between the what I will call the politicos and the and the progressives. Right. And the, so when we get down to brass tacks, we're ultimately going to be having a conversation about an intra party debate within the Democratic Party, which is age old, but in a new 21st century, you know, Internet age form between, you know, political strategy types, polit- people who like politics, you might even say, and uh, the, the, the usual progressive activist suspects. And the, and the divide is very familiar. Uh, the, the progressive activists are very very much convinced that, you know, uh, right makes might and the politicos are quite certain that it doesn't. And so we have a very old debate in, a, in, in new bottles, new Internet and, you know, crazy post-truth world bottles. So everything Gerald just said is wrong. Let me you can just play that on a loop. Uh, yes, we yes, we have two political parties. I mean, the, the Republic, first of all, how we define a party is a group of people who are trying to get their co-partisans elected and influence government. And the Republicans are doing that. The Republicans, frankly, in terms of intra-party fights are still are, are 
just as much, if not more, a mess, even though, you know, there is fealty to Trump by everyone in the Republican Party. They're they're still a mess in that they are not, you know, organized on the same page, have a message, et cetera. Um, Democrats having intra-party fight is nothing new, of course. It's probably less of an intra-party fight than in the past, if anything. And so, yeah, we have two political parties, but one of those political parties is supporting all kinds of authoritarian, undemocratic things. And and that's that's what we have. We just have a party that is completely off in in in, you know, complete insane place right now. But we do have two parties. We don't have two little D Democratic parties, though. And and since we're talking about American parties, you know, if you're saying we have two parties, but one of them is no longer a little D Democratic Party, I think that's the same thing in our context as saying we only have one party. Uh, well, the Republicans are still trying to win elections. And I mean, that that makes them Democratic. The stuff they're doing with, with the stuff they're doing with voter suppression, et cetera, is is awful, you know, and all that. But they're doing it for the purposes of winning elections. And they're doing that for the purposes of trying to influence government. So that's 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 all I mean. I mean, you have political parties in authoritarian states, right? I mean, they're they don't necessarily have to be as participatory or pro, you know, broad participation as we might like. Um, In part, just to uh, add another dimension to this fight here, uh, because as I heard it, uh, Gerald said we had one political party. Larry said we had two. And I'm going to weigh in with the with the answer is zero. Uh, And that's because, um, though, I recognize that one of the parties is more functioning than the others than the other. uh, I would say that when it comes to things like internal party organization, and that the party itself uh, determines who the candidates are. What we have right now are empty shells, labels that uh, that carry with them ballot access and some resources to networks. But 2016 was a real lesson to me that uh, a socialist candidate who uh, had had never wanted to be a Democrat almost won that nomination, and uh, a. A Democrat who had uh, uh, become a TV star uh, won the Republican nomination. And uh, the, the fact that both of these parties were so empty and, and, and subject to takeover is, uh, is really troubling to, to those of us who think about parties as organizations and those organizations having, having history. Um, and I look at both parties right now, and I think Gerald is right that one of them is closer to a political party than the other. But I'm not really seeing that these parties are cultivating talent, that these parties are developing a deep bench uh, that, uh, that has an eye towards anything except the absolute next election. Uh, and it's really hard to imagine uh one of these parties, and maybe even both, uh, looking to the future it, two or three election cycles out. Look, we have to be kind of honest here that the, at least for the Republicans, the incentive structure has changed. 
uh, so that the person who is the loudest and who gathers the most attention, very specifically within right wing media, you know, they're the ones who garner the most attention and therefore who will get the most, um, you know, the most help from the party, you know, so the party isn't doing it. Uh, the media are assisting in this process, you know, in no small measure. But to me, it is a bottom up problem of the voters are driving a lot of this. And that is universal in both parties. You know, it is. And that has to do with a lot of if you look at the squad and their constituents, you know, you're talking about, you know, very, very, very liberal constituents who are demanding very, very liberal Congress people to do very, very liberal things because of these, you know, wild discrepancies in congressional districts and how we just don't have, not even just because of gerrymandering, just because of the way that people live these days and and sorting and and the rest of it. Right. And so so that's on the Democratic side and, and on the Republican side, because of the changes in the incentive structure, um, you know, what we really do have now are, um, I, I wanted just to be contrarian to say, you know, if we have one, two, three, uh, zero parties, you know, that we have three parties, uh, but just to make it kind of diverse, but we don't. Um, I'm, you know, I still think that we do have two political parties, but I think that on the Republican side, because there is a demand side problem, that the base of the party, they're the ones who are really driving the train. And that is unfortunate because it is the base that um, really are the audience of a, and, you know, a set of, of media outlets that are feeding them the kind of, you know, political entertainment that they want, which is not news or journalism. And that is therefore driving their politics. Um, and so it's as if, you know, everybody were making decisions based on the latest episode of House of Cards. You know, it just isn't a reality. And because of that, the Republican Party, therefore, has to follow what the base is doing. So they're still having primaries, obviously. Um, and, you know, former President Trump is weighing in on these primaries, obviously. And the Republican Party is now pulling at their bald spots because they realize this is just not only bad politics, but we're going to end up with a tank full of folks who are really ill-equipped to do anything when they get to Washington, except do what Madison Cawthorn did, which is bring a staff of comms people instead of a staff of policy people. Um, and that's what they're going to continue to do because that's what their constituents want. And so, you know, to that, I, I think that, Doug, you're right. It, it is an empty shell. Um, but this is what the voters want. And is that not the very definition of little d democracy? Yes, I think that uh, it is the definition definition of little d democracy, but uh, the way that uh, American democracy has functioned historically has involved intermediary institutions that could uh, tell the people uh, sometimes when they're wrong and sometimes when what they're saying is uh, is bad for America or factually incorrect. And part of what we we have always relied on, and I know this is sometimes controversial to say, but part of what we've always relied on are elites uh, and institutions to uh, organize some of that. And uh, I think that that's what's missing and why, besides just trying to start a fight with Larry and Gerald at the same time, why I said zero. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, one of the reasons that that 
I think we're in the spot we're in is just one of the many reasons, you know, it's not just ever one thing is because those elites and it's not elite in terms of like, you know, you went to private school and you hold your nose up high elite, but in terms of decision makers and the people who are responsible for things, but the elites have done such a yeoman's job in both parties of really ignoring large swaths of the people in their parties. And this is, you could see that powerfully um, on the Democratic side. Elites have just historically ignored Black voters, Latino voters, um, you know, they're, they're rural voters. And on the Republican side, they those elites have also ignored the rural voters. And you know, those voters came out for Trump. They didn't come out for Mitch McConnell. They didn't come out for for Mitt Romney. You know, they 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 don't like Republicans. They do like Trump. And and there's a very big difference. So those elites somewhere along the line dropped the ball. And so but the, I, the thing is that Doug's Doug's point about the intermediaries being a, a useful uh, filter, a useful uh, uh, device to sort of refine the the. Uh, Vox Populi, uh, that you're, you're sort of saying that that went away because they, you know, they weren't taking care of the folks. But I think maybe it went away because the, the means that the intermediary, uh, the replacement of those intermediaries with the mass media intermediary, which is just a cluster, you know what? In other words, I don't necessarily think it's because uh, elites ignored constituencies. Of course, you can make that case, but I don't think that uh, being ignored is necessarily, um, you know, I, I mean, for decades, the, the religious right was sort of, we say, ignored, but they kept voting Republican. And now we say, well, well, now they've gotten sick of it and they're going to and they took over the party. Well, you know, would they have been able to take over the party without the Internet, without Fox News? without? So, I mean, the way that it, the way that uh, citizens now process political information has been transformed so radically that I mean, we, I'm sure everybody talks about the media as traditionally a sort of intermediary institution. Right. So the way that that does that job today is probably much more responsible for the chaos, for the uh, I can't remember which writer uh, called it the epistemological free fire zone of politics today post truth they're you know they're they're the way things are transmitted and of course the thing about the internet is it's truly democratizing in a little d sense so we've seen democratization both in terms of the institutions of parties the institutions of of um, information transmission and even uh democratization of the marketplace of ideas which is why we have lost all trust and respect in experts, et cetera. So there's, so yes, it's a bigger, it's a bigger thing. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to focus in on one, one lane of it and say, Hey, there's a truth here. You've ignored these people and you've ignored these people and then raise that up as a primary explanation. I just don't think that that holds water. No, and I don't, I, I agree with you that I don't think that it's, it's the only reason, but I also don't think that um, religious Voters. I mean, the, the literature says that religious, it's not that religious voters were ignored and then they were, you know, suddenly the internet came along. I mean, they were courted by Reagan first in 1980. I mean, so, so they were, so they were actually paid attention to. And, and it doesn't, I'm not saying that media is the reason for this. I'm saying that when those voters, when the Vox Populi are paid attention to, I think that then they are mobilized. And that is the problem. Not that the elites have just shunned you know, everybody around. It's that when people are paid attention to, that's when they start to move. And so that is, I think, you know, one element of this. And and certainly if you see how the um, 
you know, the when we're talking about elites, it's not just people in Washington. It also goes down to the, you know, the chairs of the, the county parties in different states around. You know, they're getting their cues from from lots of different places. What are they doing now? You know, and what they're doing now is following what the folks in Washington are doing. And and I think that that's, you know, obviously that's really important as well. Larry looks, I, looks skeptical. I, I, I think that we are dramatically overstating the level of change that has occurred here. And I just want to go back to, to Doug's thing about, you know, Doug led off by saying, well, Bernie Sanders almost won the nomination. By the way, he didn't. So, <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, Trump, you know, took over the Republican Party by winning the nomination. Yeah, he did. But, you know, yeah, and, and that's different, and Trump's different, and Trumpism is different. But isn't a lot of Trumpism just saying the quiet part loud that is not that different than things Reagan was saying? I mean, Reagan launched his campaign in Mississippi, right? I mean, a, a quieter kind of nod to the racism of that was a big part of the Republican coalition at that time already. Um, weren't there fights between the establishment and the progressive wing in 1984, Jesse Jackson and, and, and uh, Gary Hart almost took over the party, but they didn't in 1944, uh, you know, Henry Wallace almost took over the Democratic Party, but he didn't, uh, you know, against the establishment. This, this is the same story over and over. And, and when, and when that happens, let me just finish. And when that happens, what we typically see is parties do what they do, which is, you know, they, they try to respond not only by kind of putting a hand of friendship out to the other wing of the party. And so they try to adopt some of their positions, just as Joe Biden has moved to the left to placate, to some extent, some of, you know, the progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party. That's not, I'm just not seeing that there's, it's not like everything has changed and we don't have political parties anymore. The parties are a mess and they always have been. I think you're underestimating the, 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 the difference between what was said uh, with dog whistles and what is whistled. I don't think you're giving enough credence to how much saying things out loud changes the context, changes the argument. Uh, and I think the argument has been, I think, I think a lot of the things that are left unsaid, uh, are also left unacted upon. But once they're said, they are acted upon and that totally changes the conversation. So by by going public with the stuff that's not that was left out, left out, you've essentially said, hey, we had these nice rules and issues of decorum and we knew where, you know, we knew where the, the lines were. Let's erase those lines and say whatever the hell we want. I can't say that that's the same debate. I think that's a dramatically different debate. Trump is worse than every single one of these people, to be sure, both in what he says and in what he, do he does. You're right. But. I just am trying to say we're not it's not like some kind of hard break happened in 2016 where the, everything was fine and the parties were fine. And, and now they're ch fundamentally changed forever. I don't I don't buy that. They've just continued in a direction they were already. It's, it's more linear to me. Let, let me try something a different, a little different. I think we would all agree that when it comes down to the practice of politics, right, uh, uh, perception is reality, right? In the practice of politics, perception is reality. Fair enough? 
I'm, I have a point to make if we're if this is fair. Yeah. So let's pretend Larry agreed. In the practice, in the practice of politics, especially transactional sort of old school politics, uh, perception is reality, right? Now, if we just look at the transformation of perception, what is what is what is what does that mean? What is what is the perception that is now reality? Well, guess what? The perception that is now reality is unreal. It was not unreal. When you mentioned everybody being polite to Bob Dole, and uh, that's actually the old school way of politics. It's in other words, let's create perceptions that allow everybody to talk to each other, that allow everybody to be civil. And so part of a civilized politics is not mentioning that the other party you have to negotiate with is filled with racists. So when you think of the debate on the Democratic stage with Harris saying Biden's a racist because he actually made deals with racists, just like every other liberal did in the middle of the 20th century. What 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 Harris was doing there was taking the the, the civilized version of politics and saying it was immoral because you were doing business with racists. Right. So that opened up this Pandora's box to where now everybody is is unafraid to just go right at anybody for for whatever moral failings they have. We all have moral failings. And that makes the kind of transactional politics unattainable. Right. So the, so that's why we're all perceiving politics to have gone crazy, because we can't actually conduct it in the way we used to. Well, and if I could just add on to that, and then Doug, I want you to jump in here too, because if not, if you don't jump in here, we're never going to hear from you. Um, but in terms of fundamentally change forever, Larry, I would just push back a little bit and say that if you are, you know, of course, parties have the right to change their minds, especially when it comes to policy. But I would be hard pressed to figure out what it is that the Republican Party stands for now. And you don't have to even go back to the fact that they don't have a platform because they didn't come up with one in 2020. What is it that they stand for now? Because really what the what the qualifying question is, is do will you support a fake, you know, a a fraudulent claim of of election shenanigans, you know, uh, the big lie. Will you support that? And if you will not, then you are no longer in our you are not in our caucus. And that is it. And and that to me means that that has fundamentally changed the Republican Party, because I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party really stood for things, many of which I disagreed with. But at least you could argue on the merits of those, you know, policy stands and you can't anymore because then it's it's so it's this binary of like, well, I can't I'm not going to have a conversation with you about, you know, January 6th um, or about whether or not the 2020 election was stolen, because that's not a it's you know, it's it's not they're not shades of this. Right. I mean, and so so I think that it has changed. And when you shift to that and you can't have a policy discussion, then I think that they have lost the the functions of what a policy of what a, a party is. And if they do lose Mitch McConnell, which apparently the Republicans really, really want to, um, they want to get rid of him. Then what squad leader? I mean, OK, so you got Josh Hawley as, you know, majority leader. Oh, my God. What's going to happen then? The question for the Republicans now is not what they are for. It is who they are for. That's how they've changed. They're a party for people, for a certain, they're white, they're the white Christian nationalist party. They're not for anything. They're for somebody. 
And in other words, they've shifted the, the, the purpose of a political party from very directly ref, uh, representing uh, power in the hands of a certain kind of American. And that's different. That's not little d Democratic Party in the American tradition. Uh, I'll, uh, well, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think Ali's the, the particular point where I would feed some ground that Ali made is the, the, the point about policy that the Republican Party, that that is different. The Republican Party used to have kind of, you know, weak kind of not quite a governing agenda, but sort of a governing agenda of like less regulation, let's cut taxes, particularly things that average people don't care about, like capital gains taxes and stuff like that. Um, but, and now they don't even have that. Um, so they, there is, there's just a hollow shell in that sense of there is no policy governing agenda at all. And parties are defined as, you know, groups that seek to influence government in part is, is part of what parties are supposed to do. So yeah, that, that part is more empty than ever. It was getting pretty empty. I mean, what, what was, what was Mitt Romney's governing agenda? You know, I, I Capital gains tax cuts. I have no idea. There's a lot of deregulation in there. I think that I think that he really was looking at small government. I mean, like, look, we could, you know, you could disagree on the merits of it, but Romney, I mean, like, you know, whatever. But there were still policy issues there. You know, one of the things I wanted to say uh, when when Larry was talking was that I agree with him that there there's a lot of continuity here. That uh, the party I have in mind when I say we used to have political parties in America. they, they've been gone for, for decades now, uh, but they served a valuable function. And uh, all I would say is that they are more gone now than they used to be. Now, one of the things, uh, not, to be, not to be overly self-serving here, but one of the things that I'm hearing uh, relates to a book that I just wrote with Amy Freed at the University of Maine called At War with Government which sort of traces how the Republican Party emptied out its governing agenda and replaced it with this anti-government stance. And uh, that we, we date that going back from Goldwater to Trump. Uh, it, it's certainly more true now than it was then, but this was, this was predictable. And by 2001, when Amy and I first wrote something on this subject, it was predicted. We said, if you keep moving in this direction, this is going to become dangerous. If you keep moving in this direction, this is going to be uh, bad for America. Uh, and eventually, we were like, you know, this is going to be this is going to be violent. Uh, and uh, you know, I think that the fact that the Republican Party has embraced um, largely anti-government uh, perspectives is uh, is is at the, the the root of this this anger, and is at the root of this uh, this willingness to let uh, the the overall governing agenda of America languish, and the performance of our government uh, uh, succumb to uh, to to bitter polarization, uh, only to prove themselves right with the fundamental argument that government doesn't work. Well, they, they sabotage government, make sure it doesn't work, and then say, look, it didn't work. So we're in the situation where the Democrats have to win, they have to perform, they have to overperform. The Republicans uh, 
to the extent that they have an agenda, they, they could win too. But the ties themselves, the stalemates, uh, those end up just feeding the Republicans' line that, uh, that government doesn't work and the national government can't be trusted. That has to be uh, bad for America, and we have to say that. Doug, I want to pick up on what you just said, because you you and Amy's book was so good about the anti-governing stance that the Republicans um, have been building up to and taking for so many decades. Can you speak a little bit also to kind of what the Democrats have been doing in this time? And let's let's shift our focus over to the left for just a little bit and and pick on those guys. Sure. I think the Democrats are doing uh, what they have always done, which is uh, infighting to their own detriment. Um, I think uh, there is a certain portion of the Democratic Party that, um, and and this is probably controversial, uh, uh, envies the anger that they see the Republican Party able to uh, to to express, and they want. They want the same thing. They, they will say, well, if they got to do it, why, do, why don't we get to do it? Why are we always compromising? And um, the answer has to be uh, because somebody's got to drive the car. Uh, somebody's got to, uh, to, to do the work of trying to govern the nation. And um, I think right now, uh, because the Republican Party has become the anti-government party, um, Democrats can't can't envy and seek to emulate that polarized state. They need to uh, they need to overcome it. And uh, you know, I think a functioning political party like the Democrats will would look out at a uh, at a state and say, even if we won the state, say. Uh, we lost that county 80 to 20. Next time I want to lose it 75-25. And a functioning political party would be out there trying to speak to the parts of the state, the parts of the country that um, aren't listening to them. Now, we do, and I know I was invited to, to, to uh, talk badly about the Democrats here, but we do need to acknowledge that if it's true and it's something that, that academics like to say that Democrats need to reach out to rural voters, I think that's absolutely true. But it's also the case that, you know, we have a Republican Party that evinces no interest anymore in leading a majority in the nation. Uh, they don't have to because of the Electoral College. They don't have to because of Senate malapportionment. They don't have to because of... Uh, there's structural advantages when it comes to gerrymandering. So, you know, when, if, if, if the Democratic Party can't reach out to rural voters and that's bad, it's at least as bad that the Republican Party can't represent America's great cities. And I think that's something that we need to, we need to talk about, uh, that both of these parties need to, need to try to reach out to voters that disagree with them. And if only, to move the needle a little bit from this uh, this really negative place of stalemate that we're in. The, uh, the Republicans don't have an incentive to do that. And the Democrats, uh, the progressives of the Democratic Party that are from your sort of uh, uh, thinking they're being uh, 
unwilling to be the adult in the room, the adult party. Their the problem with the progressives is the math. They don't know they're they're not willing to accept math. The the right can do that extremism because they have the math, which is to say they can win enough elections to control the system. They don't even need a majority of people. When you're talking about progressives with their narrowly focused causes, and you think about the, the the direct beneficiaries of their most you know sort of significant causes, those people don't make up a majority of America by a long shot, right? So I I, I always come back to the sort of unrealistic theory of citizenship that progressives have always maintained, and we need here's where we need Lance to come in with the anti-progressive line, which is to say that they 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 always act as if if Americans are really are ready and willing to become politically active just as soon as we get the man off their back, they're going to step up and they're going to govern, and that's just nonsense. The average person in the most liberal you know enclaves you can find at the town meeting is looking at their watch just as often as everybody else. The fact of the matter is that uh, the, 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 the moderates or Republicans or have a more realistic notion that Americans are generally interested in being involved to the degree of electing people that they like, but they are not interested in governing themselves. They are interested in just having their say and then going about their daily lives. And the, and the progressive assumption that we have this deep participatory American urge has always been an Achilles heel for them because it's never been true. I, I read a piece earlier that if the response to conservative activism of getting elected to down ballot seats, you know, on school boards in these, you know, off your elections is that is that there may have been this big, you know, rush to anger um, and let's get elected to these these, you know, very small local offices because we just can't handle CRT anymore. Um, and we just are not going to handle any of the, you know, any of the anti-discrimination ordinances and stuff. Then realizing that that is sort of 0.1% of what a school board seat does and 0.01% of what, uh, you know, a borough office does, um, that those folks will be bored quickly um, and therefore quit or, you know, not really do their job very well. Um, it might be sort of pleasing in a, in kind of a smug, like, well, showed you way, except what that does is it, it serves to hollow out government because they're, they're probably not going to walk away and we'll have a special election for the school board. What means they'll just stop going, which means we won't have effective school boards or we won't have effective borough councils or we won't have effective government. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, if the end result of, of kind of all of this anger and, and Gerald, I, I think you're, you and Lance are, are both right that, that we are not that big a participatory government and that we, the, the volume is up very high and people are, uh, reacting right now to impulses that are being fed to them, um, from dishonest brokers. Um, but when the dust settles and they realize, well, there isn't, you know, the meat is not on the bone as much as I thought, um, what we are going to be left with are, are it's going to be really troubling because then nobody will be driving the car. Um, and, you know, Doug's point about how the Democrats are always driving the car. Well, yeah, okay, that's nice. But, um, 
first of all, it kind of sucks to always be the designated driver. And second of all, if the person who is driving the car, you know, has been voted out of office because of the threat of critical race theory being taught in kindergartens, um, and then somebody new decides to be the designated driver, but then they decide that that's really boring. So they're just going to stop showing up to drive the car. Then we have a car that's, you know, it's not being self-driven. It's not an autonomous car. It's just driving down the highway and nobody's behind the wheel. Did I take that metaphor way too far? <laughs> Progressives are just are just putting too heavy a burden on the average voter. It's like they're they're imposing a, a cognitive and a moral burden that the Republicans are not imposing on their they're they're not trying to tell you you've got to think this or do that. They're telling you, you can do whatever you want. Don't listen to those who say you have to do this or think that. They've So one side is saying, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. And the other side is saying, you got to do the right thing. Right? So, they're, I mean, they're imposing on people who are not sort of, you know, true believers. They're imposing, you know, hard citizenship on people who have no interest in hard citizenship. Sure, they're sympathetic to liberal policy and even liberal values in general, in the abstract. But, you know, that sympathy diminishes to the degree that they have to exert effort to make those things real. And that's not just, I'm not just making uh, sort of downgrading the average person. That's all of us. That's natural. That's human nature, right? In the abstract, you know, we're all, you know, great people. <laughs> we all think oh, we, we want to be good people. But when, when push comes to shove, we make decisions about our time. We make decisions about our interests. And the fact of the matter is one side is basically giving it a free for all. You're right. They're telling their voters, you're right. Don't let anybody tell you you're wrong. And the other side is saying, you got to be right. And if you're not right, get right. Which one are you going to, which one are you going to go to if you're not, you know, passionate about something? I think we're being, first of all, I think Gerald's being too harsh on progressives and is overstating how much the, the thing he's saying about the burden of citizenship that progressives are, are sort of putting on their voters, et cetera, is, is true, but it's overstated as a cause of what we see happening. It's always been the case that Democrats, especially progressive Democrats, have this unrealistic view of citizenship and what average people are going to do in participation and what, av what average people think in terms of agreeing with the, the kind of left. But agenda. now it's out loud. But, but whatever. That, but that's not new. I don't think that's new. It was out loud when McGovern said it. It was out loud in the, you know. And he got wiped out. Yeah, but, but other liberals didn't. I mean, other liberals didn't. Joe Biden is arguably the most progressive policy agenda we've ever seen, you know, but, period. But right? not, not, and that, that's not the way it's perceived, though. You're right, talking because, about reality. Right, because we're, we're getting so many different um we're getting so many different um, impulses uh, that are being thrown at us over Twitter and over cable news and over. We're just getting like so many. There's so many cooks that are adding so many voices and so many ingredients like all at once of like, oh, it's not liberal enough. It's not. And and so there's no backroom dealing anymore. It's all like, OK, we just had a meeting and here's what everybody said. And then everyone's rushing to their Twitter machines and they're rushing to the microphones and everyone's we're just hearing from everybody. Larry, I interrupted you. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I just want to suggest Again, a, 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 an interpretation of what's happening in front of us 
that maybe just isn't so much of a break with the past than, than is being suggested here. In 2016, a lot of voters are angry. A lot of voters have fatigue, Obama fatigue, fatigue with the Democratic Party being in power. That's not unusual, right? It's unusual for a party that has won the White House twice in a row to win it a third time. That would be unusual. And so Donald Trump got just enough of those votes that he won, right? He didn't win because he's brilliant at messaging. He's a joke. He won because enough people were angry and sick of Obama and let's just go in another direction. And Hillary Clinton didn't represent a new direction. In 2018, voters were extremely unhappy because Trump was terrible, awful, no good, horrible, bad president. And voters voted that way. In 2020, they kind of did again. And in 2022, from all appearances, it looks like voters are going to you know, give the House back to Republicans. Why? Because voters are still angry. The Democrats are the party in power. The Democrats, for better or for worse, aren't perceived as doing enough about inflation or whatever the heck it is that voters are upset about, right? And so, I mean, what in this story is some kind of significant break with our partisan past? I, I just don't see that it's so different. The consequences and the stakes. Well, yeah, but weren't the consequences high in the the New Deal? Weren't the consequences high in the civil rights movement? The consequences seemed pretty important because there was a civil war. I mean, stuff like that. Anyway, Doug has something to say. Yeah, Um in part, I feel like I'm the, the mediator between Gerald and Larry, who uh, insist on arguing today. Um, <laughs> but, but here, I'm going to try one more time because I think they're both right, right? So Larry makes the point that progressives have always done this. Gerald makes the point that, that Democrats and liberals are asking more of, uh, more of their voters in citizenship terms than Republicans are. The truth is progressives have always asked more uh, since the progressive era have asked more of uh, citizens than than non-progressives. They ask them to think more. They ask them to know more. They'd ask them to participate more. Um, what I find really interesting here is that this is this is what leads to fatigue. And I don't see a right wing that gets tired. I see a left wing that gets tired and gets bored and says, oh, well, now I don't have to watch those shows anymore. Now I don't have to do all of these things that I, I did for four years. I can just take it easy. Where the right is saying, well, I'm going to run for school board. Uh, where, where the right is saying, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to, I'm going to make this, this argument. Uh, and, and, you know, the left, for some reason, maybe because it does require so much in, uh, in citizenship terms, gets tired, gets fatigued, and uh, probably is going to be looking the other way in the, in the midterms, despite the fact that it looks like the economy is going to be booming uh, and, and uh, that there's a lot of work to do because of the redistricting that is, uh, is underway. You just have a left that's, that's tired and complacent and maybe even rich enough that uh, many of them uh, that, that they can withstand uh, a couple of years of, of, of Republican rule, knowing that an important part of the coalition uh, is, um, is much more vulnerable.
Well, I mean, not to be a one trick pony, but um, this is where having an asymmetric media and a propaganda wing, you know, of the Republican Party as their media outlets really come in handy um, because uh, the right wing media circle has just they just stay on message. And that message is unified and it's angry and it's threatening. And it is, you know, the narratives are just they just come at you with such force. And so, of, of course, the right is energized. I mean, first of all, they have the opposition party. Um, and so there's always more anger when, you know, when you're in the opposition. Just look at the four years of Trump. The Democrats were incensed all the time. Um, and so now it's their turn. So there's that. But, you know, but please just look at how furious every single night of Fox News programming, and they're the, you know, the behemoth in the center of all of it. But look at just what they throw at the wall in terms of what it is that their audiences should be angry at. I mean, it's things like Mr. Potato Head and, um, you know, weird sort of culture war stuff. And if it isn't something that's real, you know, like the pullout from Afghanistan, which is real, then it's just stuff that, you know, you're... Joe Biden's going to take away Christmas or your hamburgers. Um, and it's nonstop. Um, and that you would think that that kind of anger would be exhausting and would be debilitating. But that is the food um, that feeds a about. Well, actually, not about. We have it as 32 percent of the American public and they love it and they don't want it anything it's less yeah. exhausting yeah. because they're angry about something that they need to stop. They're not being called to go build something or go make something or go. Be, they're not being called. To, yeah, that's true. They're being called to just stand guard to stop something from being taken away from them. Right. And we all know the research about how th that motivates people a hell of a lot more than rational gain. Loss yeah, is far easier and more motivating than gain. And so yeah. when you're trying to convince people to go do something that will cause affirmative, you know, sort of change, that's a heavier load in every respect than just saying everybody has to do their job to protect from the bad guys. That's easy. And when they don't tell you how to run or what policy, they just, you know, so they're, you get all these conservatives wanting to be active. What do they want to be active at doing? Waving their flag and just saying America is great. It's not like they're doing rocket science. They're protecting from change. They're trying to prevent change. That's just easier. They, you always have an advantage when you're on that side of the point, on that side of the debate. My question is, what is there to do about it? If Gerald's right that Republicans have the much, much easier lift here. And I agree, they do. They have for decades now. That's always, it's always been easier to be the party that's anti-government than the party that wants to actually do something. But what is the Democratic Party supposed to do some, do about that? Are they supposed to change their messaging and say, okay, now we're the party that also wants to do nothing? Are they supposed to not do the things that they're so inconveniently asking to do, like, provide, you know, uh, paid family leave or uh, try to, you know, improve civil rights in, you know, any one of a number of different areas. I mean, of course not. They, they have to fight. They have to take on this heavier lift. So it is what it is. There's only there are two parties, but there's only one adult party in the room. And there, I don't, you know, accept the argument that somehow there's something wrong with Democratic messaging or something wrong with how they're doing it or the Democrats are overly a disorganized party. 
they're disorganized because there's some disagreement and whatever, but they're, they're, they're doing everything that can be done. And at a certain point, it needs to be said, hey, I'm, I know Gerald's not going to like this, but people, like people out there, people, grow up. I guarantee you that's not the message that's going to work. <laughs> no, it's not going to work, but, but, but it, the Democratic Party can't make it work otherwise, is my point. They can't you know, just tweak the messaging or, or even tweak the policy agenda to make it work somehow. It just is what it is, and that's a darker point that I'm making than the one you're making. Right? I'm, make, I'm making the point, there is literally no way out of this. We are in a doom loop. Well, I mean, obviously, the hope would be to be able to reestablish the kind of intermediary institutions that Doug and the rest of us all wish we could. But and and then when you think about why those intermediary, those sort of real political parties don't exist anymore, it's hard not to look towards progressives as culprits, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, they're not culprits. They're, they're fighting for good things. The things that we should all be fighting for. What the heck is so radical about paid family leave? What the heck no, is no, so no, radical? No, 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 I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, nomination reform. I'm talking about the classic unintended consequences of democratizing those institutions that used to serve as much more effective intermediaries. I, I don't think those are a problem. Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination in this crowd of, you know, wild-eyed progressives, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And who did we nominate? Joe Biden. You know, like, what's the problem here? The Democratic Party. Well, then why, you know, is, why is he so unpopular? Why isn't he able to hold together the coalition? Because that's what happens to every president in the first year of their term. That's what happens when inflation is high and people can't, you know, get their, you know, iPhone or buy a car for a reasonable price or take their kids on vacation because, you know, COVID is happening, et cetera. This is just, there's nothing new or unusual in Joe Biden's popularity going down. Totally predictable. One of the things that I would add is that Democrats need to do a better job of explaining what is government and when government works. That right now we have an awful lot of anti-government American citizens who are completely unaware that their their state is dependent on federal government money. Uh, and, you know, I think that that states like Mississippi and, and Kentucky, uh, these are states that need to need to be aware that their individualism is not all that rugged if you take that federal money away from them. And that a lot of the a lot of what's going on in America right now is that the state is, uh, to use Suzanne Mettler's term, the state is submerged uh, and people aren't really recognizing the operation of government in their lives when it's not coercive and it's not in their face as the national government. But in some ways, the most conservative parts of, of America are the most dependent on government. And it's now the Democrats' job to point that out, to point that out to people and say, this is the government at work. If you, if you really want it gone, we'll go. Uh, and, 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 and we will move on and we will reallocate these resources somewhere else. That you can't have your anti-government uh, sentiment and all of this federal largesse. 
That makes perfect sense to me. The problem is that that message is a message that the Democratic Party cannot agree on. In other words, once you focus on that message, you're not focusing on several other messages that uh, people in the Democratic Party think have to be first. In other words, the failure to be able to agree on a message is a messaging problem. No, the problem is not that the Democrats can't agree on the message. The problem is the message doesn't matter. Nobody's listening. Barack Obama, I think we would all agree, is an extraordinarily talented messenger. Great at messaging. He wasn't able to, you know, with all his talent and charisma to communicate that message to Mississippi. He didn't even move the needle. Not a bit. There's no, you know, if anyone is responsible for getting that message that Doug just eloquently laid out across, it's the people on this podcast, you know, like telling our students this stuff. And me, with all of my enormous charisma and talent, I have not been able to get that message across and move the needle one bit. You know, Gerald, with all his pomposity, has not been able to get the message across, right? Allie, who's, you know, probably one of those talented instructors I've ever seen or heard of, can't get this message to move the needle, Right? not that we're not telling them like, hey, Mississippi, you get all this money, start, you know, taking it and, and you know, maybe write a thank you note or something. Mississippi's just not re- receptive to that message at all, you know, at all. So I, I just, I don't think the problem is the message or the messenger. The problem is the citizenry, the culture is broken. And I'm not sure how together it ever was, but um, it's not it's not like we got to have a meeting of Democrats at the top of the party and, you know, make this message better, you know, or maybe they will use Twitter now because we weren't using that before or something. It's just it's just not going to be received. I, I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, about immigrants and crime. Do immigrants as a group commit more crime than native born Americans. I've published articles on this. I've spoken to experts on this. I know the data on this. And so I told this person uh, this thing and they disagree with me vehemently. And there was no way for me to tell them otherwise. And again, I'm a published author in a peer reviewed journal on this topic. So the person finally just sort of quits the argument later in the day, they text me and they say, ha I found that you're wrong. I said, okay, send me the link. And the link they sent me was a uh, white supremacist, eugenicist uh, organization who had produced their own data. The difference, and I see this because I live in Trump land and I have Trump people all through my family. The difference in so many, this is anecdotal, of course, but the difference in so much of my family is that in the 90s, had we had the same conversation, they wouldn't have felt like they were credentialed to argue with me. But every night, these people I know, because I know them very well. They go home, there's somebody speaking to them that sounds very authoritative. They have their own set of facts, right? And there's, there is no convincing them. So, isn't that different, Larry? And you thought you've said we're in a doom loop and also none of this is different from the past. Isn't that different that people feel like they are uh, credentialed, that they have, uh, they're justified to speak on these things. They have their own set of facts and the anger is turned up in a way that I don't remember it being before. 
Yeah, well, that I mean, that's that's a that's like a hitting putting a tee a tee ball there for Allie to hit out of the park. That's Allie's kind of area of expertise. But yes, that is different, and Allie can speak in much more credentialed way to that point than, than I could. But yeah, that's different. Um, what's also different, putting aside the 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 you know big you know media uh, kind of piece of it is just the rise of the internet and the way in which the the sort of social capital is breaking down. So we're just not connected to one another. You know, you mentioned this as kind of as if you were talking to somebody in person, we're just not doing that much anymore. And that's, that's a problem too. And that's different. So all of those things are, are different. But again, if you're, for whatever reason, if you're not able to convince uh, someone who's a friend of yours or someone in your own family of like, here's the actual data, you know, no, immigrants are not <laughs> actually committing more crime. You know, what, what hope do we have that Democratic Party leaders are going to convince people in rural Kentucky, you know, by the way, you're wrong. The federal government is actually helping you out, not making your life more difficult. I agree with you. And my, that that would be my point would be a lot of what you said earlier was just that this wasn't different. That seems really different. I mean, again, just rewind prior to even Fox News going Patriot Purge and the direction they've gone recently. Um, just rewind just a few decades. The idea that like there were facts, the idea that there were ways of knowing facts, that there weren't alternate universes of facts that has changed completely. So it's not just that uh, I can't convince them they don't think I'm a legitimate person to convince them. <laughs> this is just another way of saying that one side imposes a, a, a greater cognitive load than the other. When you all the all you have to do on the right is play to people's prejudices, because the fact of the matter is we all have them and we will all rationalize them with whatever data you throw at us. The fact of the matter is that, you know, uh, distrust, as Doug and Amy made very clear, is the is the linchpin here. Trust is the key to persuasion. And when trust is gone, persuasion becomes even more impossible. But when you look at it in a universe of, you know, rational persuasion is totally out the window. We still have one party trying to marshal the data and trying to make arguments and trying to and the other party smartly, I would argue, not paying any attention to data or facts and just um, just going at the, what they know to be the the embedded prejudices in people. And they know that those will win out. You can't convince people with data. That's crazy. And, and one party doesn't hasn't figured that out yet. I'm not sure that you can convince people of anything, because I think that we are in such sort of closed filter bubbles of our own. Um, and there are just too many ways for us to um, hang out with birds, you know, who look like ourselves, you know, we flock together. Um, even when we try not to, you know, even when we just give it our all. And, you know, our friends, our family members are very different than we are. Um, these days, it is very difficult for us to continue um to have conversations because there are just, it feels like there are minds sort of laid out in front of you everywhere. And you've got to be, you've got to tiptoe around <laughs> conversations um, at every turn. Um, and that feels fraught. And, you know, at the end of a week when you're exhausted, you don't want to have to tiptoe through a minefield. Um, 
but that's where the that's where you know the bowl the bowling leagues come in right that's where you need to go out and do something where you don't have to talk too much but you can be with somebody who's not like you um and i don't particularly bowl although i was on the bowling team in high school because that's where you could play a sport and also have nachos uh so you know that's where i would really recommend um you know people get out of their lanes and out of their filter bubbles and talk and hang with people who are different than them um because that we don't have to convince people um i mean we do but we don't i think if we convince people that the other side is nice uh and that we're not trying to harm anybody then that goes a long way and um doug i think you have something to say as well i i agree with you uh quite a bit ali the issue that i was thinking about and have been thinking about for for a while now is if if your prior number is right and that there's 32% of the country that's just angry and to the right and 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 really you're not going to be able to have a conversation with them i wonder about the 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 10 to 14% who constitute the rest of the republican reliable electorate and why it is that somebody on on your side citing a white supremacist organization uh, doesn't turn you away. Why it is that the, the January 6th doesn't turn you away, that there are, there are uh, thoughtful people who, for a variety of reasons, might still be voting with that side that, for some reason, are not turned away by the insidious and, and, and previously wholly discredited ideas of 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 white supremacy of and and or, or or turned away by the violence uh why are they looking for an excuse to ignore it and what what do we do to take those excuses away and to say there has to be some better leadership on that side because this cannot this cannot happen this this is not sustainable for america you have to rebuild the infrastructure of trust that used to exist in those intermediary institutions that have been decimated and weakened. We have too much democracy. Well, but but also the, the you know the that whatever you called it, uh, ten to fourteen percent of uh, of people who um, you know are are reliable or somewhat reliable Republican voters, but aren't you know, in the, you know, total crazy town, you know, what do they do? What do those voters do when they're presented with an election year like 2021 in Virginia and New Jersey or in 2022 in the midterms where maybe some of those people, maybe a small number of them voted even for Biden because they just couldn't abide Trump. But then they turn around and vote for, uh, you know, what's his name in Virginia and the Republican candidate in Virginia. And uh, because, you know, critical race theory and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I was talking to one such person recently who voted for, you know, for Biden because they're kind of Republican leaning, but couldn't abide Trump and they're a reasonable person. Uh, so they voted for Biden in 2020, but um, turned around and voted for uh, the Republican for governor in, in Virginia. And when I asked him, you know, why, why, what is it that, 
you know, well, I was tired of being called a racist by the Democrats. You know, well, I mean, <laughs> this is not a stupid person. This this is not an uneducated person. This is this is someone who knows all the facts that, that all of us have been talking about, whether it's Lawrence's point about, you know, immigrants and crime or the point about where federal aid goes. And, yeah, I know that, you know, for instance, that rural part of Western Virginia gets lots of federal aid, too. And yet here they are voting against federal aid candidates who support federal aid all the time, you know. But they just don't like the kind of shaming that they feel they're getting from uh, the left wing media complex, from left wing candidates, the squad, critical race theory, you know, pour in whatever other hot button labels we want here. And I mean, here we're talking about someone I, I can talk to, someone who is reasonable, educated, smart, et cetera, understands politics and what do you say about that? Well, don't Democrats have some responsibility for him feeling that way? We can't blame it all on Fox. Well, wouldn't a, wouldn't that ten to fourteen percent still be motivated on some level by the same fear of cultural change, fear of demographic change that the rest of them are? But they were less uncomfortable with the explicitness of it, right? And so, you know, the, with the really extreme candidates, they can't they can't abide, but. For the most Absolutely. part, they're still motivated by some of this. They're yeah. also convinced that right? both sides have to be just as bad as the other. Americans can't can't asymmetry in terms of partisanship is something that the average American simply will not abide because it screws with their worldview. If you got if if there are crazy people on the right, then there's got to be crazy people on the left, and they they've got to be as many of them, and they've got to be just as dangerous. And if you try to educate them about the actual symmetry or lack thereof. They're just they're not going to take the time to listen on the one hand. But on the other hand, no one has the credibility to tell them that. Just one thing, you know, Gerald brings up asymmetric polarization. I think those of us who want a message beyond the academic conference uh, need to come up with a different way to say that. Uh, and uh, we need we need to develop a language that says uh, that these things are not equal, uh, that you and the press should not always treat them like they're equal. Uh, and, but we need to come up with a, with a, a different word f or a different phrase for that, because as elegant as it is in, in, in the academic sense of, uh, you know, a term that captures what, what it is we're talking about in terms of our, our modeling, it's just not anything that, that doesn't require a paragraph long explanation to somebody who, who, who's not part of these conversations already. Well, could I could I just add could I just add something that, that, to tie it back to to Jerry Malur, who we all miss and love? Uh, one thing that that I learned from Jerry very early in my time as a graduate student, and I forget even in what I don't think it was in a class, but it was in a just a conversation we were having about politics, and Jerry made this point to me, which I'm sure he made to others as well about, you know, how he would engage sometimes with people on the left who were, who were um, very anti-Reagan and anti-Republican in that time, you know, the, the 70s and 80s, and, you know, like the McGovern types and the, and the, you know, 
whoever else, you know, on the far left, and that the far left was was basically saying, you know, fight the man, fight the, you know, fight the power, et cetera. And Jerry said, don't don't you realize that you're creating more Republicans by saying that, right? You are you may be right on the merits about you know the, the these institutions are are uh, making your life difficult, et cetera, but um, but by you adopting the language of the institutions themselves have to be torn down, you are um, making it impossible for Democrats when they sometime do get power to be able to actually do things, the things that you want them to be able to do. And you're breaking down to, to Doug's earlier point, trust, basic trust in institutions, trust in government, trust in fellow people. Uh, along the way. And Doug, I would um, I would say I agree with you about having a new definition for asymmetric polarization. And the way that I describe it to my students is that um, the difference between the way the left and the, the right are fighting is that the left is bringing an NPR tote bag to a gunfight. Your students know what NPR is? No, but they know what a tote bag is. <laughs> um, you know, I think that uh, I think that this is actually uh, since we had a hat tip to Jerry Malore, who um, did, uh, you know, speak so eloquently about the hazards of too much democracy um, and the fact that uh, we got to ask, I think, one question which was how many parties we have. Um, I think this is a good place to stop because I think we've, we've, you know, answered that. We are on the record as having one party, two parties, and no parties. And um, I would just like to have an actual party where we can all get together and um, fight in person um, over some hors d'oeuvres because that's always the way that I uh, enjoy having such discussions. So, um, Larry, Gerald, Doug... Thank you so much for joining us. This was a fun answer to one question. All right. Well, it's time for the wrap up segment. I would usually take this moment to discuss a few stories in the news that I think are important, but it's been a long show. I'm battling COVID. I think I'm going to tap out on this one. So I'll just very quickly run through uh, a few stories that I think are important uh, and then we'll get out of here. There's a January 4th, 2022 piece by Amanda Carpenter in The Bulwark. The title is The Good Coup, and uh, she talks about former advisor to the Trump White House, Peter Navarro, and how he provided research reports to back objections to the Electoral College that were approved by Trump and disseminated by his office to members of Congress. Over 100 members of Congress were lined up to execute this plan. They were going to drag out the certification process, create significant media coverage, and create incredible pressure to send the election back to the states to decertify. And eventually, they were hoping the House of Representatives would decide the election in favor of Trump. So check out that piece by Amanda Carpenter, January 4th, The Bulwark. A couple other pieces. Um, Evan Osnos had a piece December 27th, 2021 in The New Yorker. Dan Bongino and the big business of returning Trump to power. Check out University of Baltimore law professor Kim Whaley's work on ways we can reform our democracy. And of course, a good, a little bit older, but a good piece by Robert Kagan, September 23rd, 2021, in the Washington Post, our constitutional crisis is already here. Well, that's it for this show. Check us out at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M.org. See you next time. 
Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.